You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. Because we've done too deep a dive on cryptozoology, and now we must know what a world with giant sharks that eat boats actually looks like. I don't want that. <laughs> I'm Andrea Stewart. I'm Marshall Ryan Moresca. I'm Cass Morris. I'm Rowena Miller. And this is episode 98, Mysterious Worlds. rough few episodes for you Cass we keep coming back to like <laughs> horrible deep sea deep sea terror. things I know Cass's yes. personal hell it's building my character or something yes or something <laughs> it doesn't kill you makes you see but see it's perfect because you're afraid of boats and if the sharks eat I the boats know. then you won't have to be on boats I don't want to be in sharks either <laughs> that's not an improvement in my life circumstances well, maybe they only get places by plane. I mean, like, that could be a thing, too. There, there we go. go. Well, welcome back, Andrea. It's so fantastic to have you on the podcast again. It's been a while. Yeah, it's wonderful to be here. It has been a while. What's 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 been going on since the last time you were on? I think, I think you've had, like, some books and stuff come out or something. Yeah. So my third book in the Drowning Empire series is coming out in April. So that series will be finally complete and everyone can know what happens at the end and what happens to all the, all the characters. Uh, I am working on a new series now, which I'm really excited about because I, you know, I, I like to world build. So here I go again, building an entirely new world with new characters. Uh, it's fun. It's fun to explore. It's frustrating, obviously, but it's fun. Excellent. Always the challenge whenever you've done so much of like a complete world and a complete story, and then you're like, I I, I have to like do all of that again. What what is this? <laughs> have person? to get to get to do all of <laughs> have that to again. Get, it's get to, but also have to, and it's like <laughs> you for, you forget too. You forget how hard it is. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's true. So since you're, you're diving into it anew, um, what are some of the parts of world building that you just get excited to play with? Oh, yes. Yeah. So I, I really get excited about coming up with, well, this, this topic exactly, like what kind of mysteries exist in the world? What kind of things do they know? What do they not know? I also get really excited about coming up with the stories that they tell each other and how those differ from place to place, just depending on the history that they, they have. Um, I just also like thinking up like really cool reveals. This is just my thing that I, <laughs> I like to do where I'm thinking like, oh, what is the moment going to be when they discover this thing about the world? And how does that change their understanding of everything or open up new possibilities? Like that to me is really exciting because I enjoy that kind of thing in our world. So I like doing that in new and uh, exciting worlds that I'm building. I mean, that is always, I mean, I remember with the Meridane stuff way back in 1990, <clears throat> When I was first starting that stuff, I, one of the documents I had was the secret history of the world, because like all the histories for the different regions based on you know cultural regions or countries. But then I'm like, what about the stuff that 
none of these people know about. Like, that's not part of their history. And also, I mean, my particular thing of, like, this that I love is, like, ancient lost cities. Yeah. Cities that were well ahead of everybody else, but then, like, fell apart or something like that. Like, that is that is my jam. Yeah, like, lost knowledge. That's <laughs> yes. always exciting. Yeah. I also love the things where they, they know just enough about it to know nothing. But they know that something's out there, whether it's like another civilization or a, a mountain or a kind of animal. They, they have hints. They have they have a little bit. And then people will build such fantastic stories around that. <laughs> um, and we see it happen in history all the time. And it's it's the whole, you know, it's here there be, mon- be monsters idea. Right. We, so built, we, build, we build like legends around things that we don't yeah. fully know about. And then as world builders, we get to we get to both know the real story and the story that our people are making up about the story, which is just that's just fun. I just like that to me is one of my favorite parts, definitely. Like secret cities that were more advanced and, and but have now vanished. Mysterious parts, yes. Yeah, I just I think it's fun that like I don't know, we we all think that we're you know, we're so advanced and we don't have any of these mysteries like way long time ago people did. And it's like, it takes one random balloon thing getting shot down and everyone's like UFO <laughs> fever, you know, like we clearly love it. It's like catnip, even even to us in past the year 2000. I mean, we're still discovering things right now, so it's not too far-fetched. True. But I think it's a really fun human instinct to, to wonder you know, like, and, and to feel sort of comforted by the fact that we don't know everything. There's something interesting about the way that we, we want there to be mysteries out there. We want there to be unexplained phenomena. We want there to be something bigger than us or beyond us to keep some sort of, I don't know, some, some element in the world that, that isn't in our control. It's a very, like, fascinating psychological impulse that we have, I think. I mean, I can think about it just like in my lifehood time in my childhood there was still like this idea of like that there could be still a mystery city or some other thing and now it's like no we've taken satellite photos of all of it it's you know (laughs) (laughs) there there is no magical city in the mountains sorry unless the magical city in the mountains has some kind of cloaking device that is hidden Ah, like wakanda Uh uh-huh Because there's always, like, that's part of the fun of the mystery, too, is the, like, well, why haven't we figured it out? Like, well, we haven't found Bigfoot because Bigfoot's really smart and good at hiding. So there. (laughs) (laughs) Just never ceases to make me laugh that um, where we used to live in southern Indiana, like, lots of woods, so of course there's Bigfoot stories, but there was a no-kill Bigfoot society, which implies that not only did they, like, fervently believe Bigfoot existed, but they'd already made the ethical decision that, that you should not kill Bigfoot. Well, so yeah. it was the humane Bigfoot <laughs> society. I now want a no-kill Bigfoot shelter where yes, if where you, you find can. a Bigfoot, you can bring it there and know it'll be safe. Right, exactly. <laughs> okay, so this raises a silly question because like like the Sasquatch, like that's like a general sort of like like large, hairy, ape-like, man-like creature that lives in the woods. But like Bigfoot was like, an individual there's it's not like there's big feet like it's one guy who is who's out there immortal neanderthal that's been (laughs) that's why he's so good at hiding because he's had well he's got a lot of practice millennia of practice i like that theory where there's some kind of he's some freak of nature that has just been living forever 
And he's out there. I saw a good theory about that, about um, Nessie, too. And by good theory, I mean it's absolutely bonkers. But Which one of are things, the best theories. Exactly. It's one of those things It's like, <laughs> I would choose to believe that even knowing it was scientifically impossible just for funsies, which is that Nessie is actually like a plesiosaur or or a collection of plesiosaurs that, that have just, you know, propagated in this lake. And they live in some like, the reason you only see one at a time is because they've actually got some like subterranean or submarine, sub below the water way to get like underneath a mountain where they've got their plesiosaur paradise. And... There's absolutely no way. But wow, I like thinking about it. I like thinking about a little happy family of Nessies somewhere, you know? <laughs> See, the conspiracy theories need to be more like this. <laughs> this is what I'm saying. What I like about it, too, is that it's like, we acknowledge that the mysterious creature would be much happier not being bothered by us. Like, it wants its nice little space under the mountain. Well, I always think about the discovery of the coelacanth, which I actually had to look up the pronunciation for because I'm a writer and, you know, I read a lot of words and I'm like, coelacanth? And I looked up how to pronounce it this morning because I was like, oh, crap, I'm probably going to talk about it on this podcast. Uh, But yeah, they thought it was extinct for like 66 million years and then they found one. And I just love the description of the guy that came in to look at it and he was just like, oh my god he like just had this feeling of shock because it was like seeing this this living fossil this thing that should not have been alive still and i'm like oh i just love that i like want to put that moment in a book yeah it's like my favorite this is a total side note my my favorite like commercial of all time is the volkswagen commercial where they open up the hood there's like two mechanics sitting there they open the hood i think it's like that they they have the the full-size tire and he's like I thought these were extinct, like the coelacanth. Coelacanth thought it was extinct for six hundred million years or whatever. Coelacanth. I just I love that commercial. It just delights me. It's a very cool looking fish. If you haven't seen it, like definitely, it's, it's not spelled how it sounds. No, we're gonna have to like in some tweet accompanying this episode, we will spell the word coelacanth for you so you can find it. I will make a note to do that when tweeting. <laughs> Help finding the coelacanth. I mean, finding out what it is. I, I don't know how to tell you to actually go find one. I, no, I don't either. Probably involves boats, so. Probably does, so you'd rather avoid it. Yeah. It does involve boats, Cass. Yes, so. Which raises a good question, actually, of when you are world building, when you're creating a world, how much of that world, like, is, quote unquote, discovered or known, which kind of informs the kinds of mysteries you're going to have, right? Like, if you have a very, like our world, where, you know, we we know a lot of it, but there are still some parts that we don't know, like a lot of the deep undersea stuff, we really don't have a great grasp on. So, like, what what is known? What's not known? How does that affect how you build the mysteries. Yeah, I mean, I feel like first there's what do you as the author know? (laughs) Because I don't know about you guys, uh, I don't actually go and flesh out a map of the entire world. Usually I'm like, oh. Marshall's face, (laughs) y'all. <laughs> I just can't do the Schrodinger's continent thing. Like, no, like that's just. And for me, it depends on the story. Like, do, do do my characters have enough of a sense of the rest of the world that I need to do that, or are they isolated enough that, for me, it doesn't matter. I don't need to know because neither do they, and it's never going to enter the actual story. 
Right. Like how much exploring have they done? Have they actually covered the entire world or are they just more familiar with this one part and you can have rumors or stories of other parts and I'm like, just, I, I, I'm, I'm sorry, Marshall. I do a lot of the hand wavy stuff in my world building, which is, I know probably anathema to we you. We all have our own processes. Well, I mean, in the Drowning Empire, you at least had it be that like, the islands are all moving around. So you can't have a map because like, I know. Because there is no, there won't is, be one. Is like, that it why exist. you did it that way? <laughs> <laughs> well, when my publisher asked me about a map, I was like, oh, crap, I got to draw a map. <laughs> I mean, they have they have like a map of like, well, this is how it is like at this time of year. But then these islands move. So you never like really it's not like a, it's like these distances are not to scale. You know how they say that? <laughs> <laughs> Objects and map may be closer than they appear. <laughs> exactly. So that's like how it works in that world where they stay in like the same kind of loose configuration mostly, but they move farther apart and closer together. And then depending on what season it is, they're going to be in a different part of the world. So your star chart is not going to be you're not going to rely on like a oh this is how it is so it's like they have to do all these comp- complicated calculations to figure out like what exactly like where are we going and like how far is it right now um so that's like yeah part of the world building there where i had a whole profession that does that so how much of the world do you know how much do they know so yeah i think part of that is thinking about like well how advanced is your society Uh, So it's not like how many mysteries are there, because there are always going to be mysteries, no matter how advanced your society is, which I think, you know, our our scientific discoveries today prove that. So you got to think, okay, well, how advanced are they? And uh, also, like, what are their biases? Right. Because sometimes you make a quote unquote discovery and you're like well this is the way that it is but maybe you've done something a little bit wrong or you're just looking at one small part there's you know that whole proverb about a person the three people feeling the elephant who are blindfolded right and like they all have a different idea of what an elephant is so there's so many aspects that go into what do your people know about the world and where are they at in that timeline of discovery And that's like, that is like one of the things that I I really, really enjoy doing in world building, especially exploring biases. Like, (laughs) you know, we talk about discoveries and when I look up like discoveries of different animals and species, it's like, well, okay. So the person that colonized that place discovered it, right? It's new to them, but it is not new. (laughs) That animal is not new to the people that live there. Right, like like, like the, the, the Okapi? That they that that like white white people didn't know until like you know the twentieth century. The people who lived there knew about the Okapi. Like, like right, they're like <laughs> we discovered it. Like, oh, right. Oh, <laughs> well, one thing I think of too is like you know when we think of like the tech level and advancement of of a world in terms of relationship to discovery and and mysteries. I think we often think of like well, what like technology do they have for exploration and for scientific inquiry? But I think that one of the most important elements is actually communication. Like how much is this world able to communicate with each other? If I know something, does everyone else know it? Or is it just isolated to my little corner of the world? And I think that that can be a fun place to play too of like, okay, so what is mysterious to one group of people isn't mysterious to 
everyone or are there people who who know about it as well are you do you have the technology to communicate with each other and and do you actually listen to each other right like do you have a religion that says this is the way that things are and oh yes the earth is the center of the solar system and anything else <laughs> we're gonna lock it's you heresy up. and right. we're gonna burn right. you <laughs> exactly exactly so there there are those kinds of things to play with in a world as well and two like how many how many sets of idea how many sets of people does an idea go through in order to get sort of from the people who know about it to the people who know the least about it. If you look at like medieval drawings of Asian and African animals, <laughs> it's like, I've heard of this by vague description. I think this is what an alligator looks like. It's and very funny. It's like horrible zoological telephone. <laughs> or, or exactly, or like um, giraffes. The, the earliest references to giraffes call them camel leopards, camelopards, really, because it's kind of like a camel and kind of like a leopard. <laughs> I and mean, put those things together. Fair. Giraffe? <laughs> question mark? Fair. It's kind of like both of those things. When I was in Japan, we were doing a tour of one of the palaces, and they had um, these murals on the walls of uh, tigers and leopards, and there's like a plaque telling you that, hey, actually, like what they believed back then is that the tigers like every so often would just give birth to a leopard so they're like the same species <laughs> so you know it's like sure. not their part of the world and yeah. you don't really you don't really know how the animals behave and that seems completely realistic to you well, i mean I sure like animals come in different patterns so you know it's like you you have cows and and and, and sometimes yeah. they have more <laughs> black or more white and sometimes they come out with spots so why wouldn't it work that way for everything sure makes sense when people are always using their own frame of reference to explain the unexplainable, which is why it's it's so funny, like with the camel leopards, or oh, I forget exactly what the word was, but somebody did a study of like what different languages all call things that are not native to their culture by way of explaining it, like in the words they have, like how we call what we call pineapples in English. It's not what everyone calls pineapples, but we looked at it and went, it's a fruit and it's spiky. Uh, sure. Pineapple. <laughs> and there's things like that in every single, like in every language when, when they encounter something and they don't know what it's called or they're just not listening to the people who are telling them what it's called. They make up something that, that is usually some kind of combination word to, to frame it in their own language. And there was this whole, I forget if it was on Tumblr or something, this whole thread of like just back and forth in a bunch of different languages. And it was just so interesting to see how people try to frame the unfamiliar to themselves. I remember reading something because it was talking about like, you know, gender binary silly because it's not like all all food is like either apple or potato and nothing else. But then somebody broke down. It's like, so actually, if you look at like like root words for so many like so many things, the root word actually does go back to like apple or potato. <laughs> <And> <laughs> it's like because people are like, what is this? Uh, Kind of like an apple. More like an apple or more like a potato, right? And in, fr yeah. in French, it's the same word. A, a potato is an, an earth apple. <laughs> Pomme de terre. It's an apple from the earth. Everything's an apple. We'll just go with that. <laughs> Apples all the way down. Apples just... It makes me think of, too, um, those artist renderings that they'll do of um, if we found this skeleton and created it the way that they draw dinosaurs, this is what the animal would look like. And it's like, they're they're absurd. They're completely absurd. They, they are never nearly chubby enough. It's like, so like the, the, the biases of like how 
like mus- musculature is going to work. You can just imagine people in, you know, in in our fantasy worlds discovering bones of things and just like like puzzling together what this animal is based on what they know and what they think they know about the world around them. I mean, you also get the thing, I mean, Star Trek does this all the time with like, you know, like, oh, it's a it's a Terranian bobcat. Like, is it a bobcat? No, but like it's on this other planet. It's kind of Bobcat-like, so <laughs> this is what we can get our heads around. Um, who was it? Oh, it's Charlie Jane Anders in, what's the name of the book? It's like The City on the Edge of Midnight. I want to say is the name of the book, but I probably screwed that up. But she does a thing where humans who have colonized on this alien planet, and it starts out like, like, there's a crocodile over there. Like, it's not a crocodile. It's whatever the alien creature is that whoever first saw it sort of like, Eh, crocodile-ish, maybe? Good enough. <laughs> and so, like, all the alien animals that are, like, radically different from anything you ever experience here are given names that are, like, they're sort of, like, I guess it's a bunny, kind of, <laughs> <laughs> feeling to it, you know. I think it's funny, too, that we kind of act as though in, in our world that, like, understanding something about the science and taxonomy saves us from mystery in some ways. Like, I was watching... You're not going to like this cast. You're not going to like it at all. I was watching one of those, like, documentaries about, like, deep sea stuff, and they were talking about orfish. <laughs> Have you ever seen an orfish? It's a sea serpent. It's this giant ass long fish that looks like a giant snake. And I, and they're like, people thought these were sea serpents. Ha ha. And I'm like, explain to me how that's not a sea serpent. <laughs> that's a sea serpent. Like, Technically, I mean, it's not a sea serpent because like, it's not a we, the reptile. <laughs> right. Like we, we, we fixed it on the taxonomic chart. Therefore, it's no longer mysterious. Like, no, that thing is insane. What is it? I mean, dinosaurs. Like... A lot of dragon and other like um, oh, cyclops myths. I think were supposed to come from from elephant even elephant skulls because they've got yeah. the big hole in it. And it's like these are people doing the best they can with the knowledge they have available to them. If and I again, looked at a triceratops <laughs> skull and did not know anything else, I would think giant monster. And I wouldn't and entirely be, be wrong. You'd be like, right. Explain to yeah. me. It's not a dragon. <laughs> it's. I mean, that could be a dragon. I don't know. Maybe it's a dragon. It's, it makes perfect sense. And I. Once again, I love watching how people try to make sense of their world with the information already available to them. It's a cool thing that we as humans try to do, which doesn't mean it can't also go spectacularly wrong. But it is a cool instinct that we we want to make sense of our universe in some way. Yeah, I mean, we still do that. I mean, I, th- I think about like the appendix, right? We're we're still not quite sure what it does. We just know sometimes it needs to be removed. Yeah, <laughs> I'm like, gosh, like I mean, you, you can live without it, right? It's but uh, kind of nuts that we just go in there and do that. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of like, I f- I feel like if if nothing else, the pandemic did teach many of us just how little we actually know about how human bodies work. Like, because you're like reading this, you're like, wow, we actually don't know how that works. That's that's crazy. Let alone the whole world out there. Like, the world of, like, how we function as organisms is mysterious in a lot of ways. That's why it's, like, wild to me when you watch science fiction movies and then they go and they take their helmets off on some new world. I'm like, you have no idea what is out there. I mean, it could be, like, you know, the same composition as it is on Earth, like, 
from a chemical standpoint, but who knows what's out there biologically. Right. Like you're like snorting funguses and viruses and who knows what else is going to like kill you. The, and the dust in the air can and be toxic. You... To be fair, a lot of really bad 50s horror movies start with that premise. So... <laughs> One of the early Star Trek Enterprise episodes was just that, like, they land on the planet, it's pretty, and they're like, all right, we're doing, we're just gonna tool around and explore a little bit, and like, oops, the air is full of hallucinogens. (laughs) (laughs) Whoops. We all went crazy. Whoops. Didn't check the opium content in the air. Make a note for future discoveries. Exactly, though. It's like, because you don't know what you don't. No, right? So you don't know when encountering a new world what you need to ask about it. But I think it is human nature to be confidently wrong. It's a great statement, yes. <laughs> and thus you get those sorts of myths of like mysterious places that may or may not exist on the other side of the mountain because like, no, it, it, there must be that. It, it must exist. So therefore, you know, like there's got to be over there a fountain that is you know gives us eternal youth there's got to be a city made of gold there's got to be you know stands to reason <laughs> that's another thing that that i like to play with too in mysterious worlds is that people will often latch on to something that sounds cool or interesting to them where you want to i know it's very x-files i want to believe uh <laughs> but you know like it's it's true i mean People want to believe that Bigfoot exists or they want to believe that there is a fountain of youth or that there is some city that's made of gold. I mean, it sounds really cool. It's something that you would really like to discover. Would I like to discover a fountain of youth? Yes. But, you know, oftentimes they they don't exist. Just people want to believe that they do. And I feel like that's a huge motivating factor for people where you'll maybe stretch the truth a little to yourself even <laughs> just just because something sounds good to you i think that's interesting that there's like different kinds of mysteries there's the like positive mystery of oh if only we could find the fountain of youth we could you know we could do all these things and then there's the like kind of negative mystery of like yeah bigfoot might eat your face off you don't know i think like with with world building and storytelling um i i really find it fun to make these kinds of discoveries and mysteries um, tie into the plot somehow where, okay, we don't understand how this particular thing works. We just do the thing. But then once they discover how it works, it has like these huge world implications and they have to decide, are we going to still do things this way or does it open up new possibilities for us? I, I think that that, is to me that's like one of the most fun parts of building a mysterious world is figuring out how it fits into the plot which is why i probably will continue jumping from world to world as i write (laughs) (laughs) because otherwise i won't get to do that as much anyways well see that's at least for me like that's the other side like i will come up with these like cool little other mystery things but i'm like but does this have anything to do with the plot is there any reason for me to, to, to bring it up at all if I'm not going to actually use it in the story? Or is it just going to be this cool thing that I know about that will end up in, in the ephemera somewhere? Or is it something that just informs your characters, you know, misbeliefs about the situation or, or how they approach everyday situations because of something they believe beyond them? It, 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 can, it can be 
tightly woven into the plot, or it can be tightly woven into your characters and only sort of a, a dusting upon the plot. I think one that does it really, really well as a plot element, and I don't want to say too much about it because it will like totally spoil the first book, but um, C.L. Polk's Witchmark has a fantastic unraveling mystery of a thing that, well, some people knew how it worked, but most of the society does not know how it works. And when they find out, there is a big old ethical can of worms to deal with. And that's that's fascinating. There's so much good story juice there. That brings up a good point in that, like so often in genre fiction, when like, like here is a piece of information about the world, it's presented. Like so often it, readers will treat that as an objective truth when you subvert that or like show that like maybe that person just had their information wrong like even if it isn't supposed to be like a big mystery but just like you got it wrong some audience will treat that as like some sort of betrayal of the canon or something well i think that you have to lay down hints right i mean i I think that's a really important thing that like i always make sure to do in my work so that it, it never feels like it's coming out of left field So uh, one of the things that I I really like to do as a reader or as a viewer, depending if it's, you know, uh, a television show or movie is kind of try to figure that stuff out before it gets revealed. (laughs) Like, you know, um, you'll have people like, oh, I've had people contact me and and ask like, oh, is this what's going on in the world? And I'm like, well, I can't tell you. Um, (laughs) That's what the book is for. (laughs) Right? You have to read it. (laughs) I know, I know. But they want to know if they're right. And like, sometimes they've gotten like really close or they've been like, right, but I can't say anything. Or sometimes they've been like really off the mark. But I feel like that's like one of the fun parts about Mysterious Worlds that are linked to the plot because it does make you want to try to figure it out. So I don't know if you've like, I'm sure like people have watched like Lost and everything. And I remember being so fascinated with all these different elements and trying to figure out how they fit in. But I think it's really important as the creator of your mysterious world to have a function for these things. Like don't just throw in something that sounds cool and not have it have like any function, even if it's only like in your head. Like I remember um, the thing that I was so curious about was that at one point they discover this foot of a statue out in the ocean. Yes. It's only yes. and it's only got four toes. Yes. Oh my god! Oh my god! It's what only got mean? four toes. What does it mean? What does it mean? Like what? What possibly could be going on here? And um, this was actually after the show had all come out. So like I went and I looked it up online. And like spoiler, sorry, spoiler alert. You never find out. <laughs> you never find out. And at that point, that's when I stopped watching the show because I was like, if they don't tell me what the four toes are about, <laughs> then like I don't care about this show anymore. Which maybe more says no, more about me. Fair, fair. They betrayed our trust with that. <laughs> but yeah, I think you have to keep that trust with the reader. Where if you're revealing something or you're you're giving them some information that is mysterious, that is really intriguing, like explain it later. Well, because. Like we have the we have the functions of like plots that everyone's kind of agreeing to play by, right? And like if I'm going to drop something, like it's gonna fit in somehow. And it might just be a pretty detail that I'm giving you to help you understand the world better, or it might be character development. But it's not just a mystery that gets thrown in there and is related to nothing and means nothing. Like like as writers, we have we have made a promise that there is some reason we're saying what we're saying. I mean, I say this as somebody who loved Lost, but will also, if you open that box, I will start <laughs> ranting. 
But like, but like, <laughs> but like, there was a specific example where, like, it's not just there was a statue that you know was a broken statue with a four-toed foot. Like, the broken statue was enough of like a that's a mystery. I remember they very textually had a character say, "Why does it have only four toes?" You opened that door. Yeah, you pointed <laughs> you, at it <laughs> and said, "This might be important later." And then you were like, the, "Then you the, took it away." Then you took it away. Well. They they did a lot of things where they, they did. <laughs> where they either they did a lot of things they did a lot of things where they just like were just throwing mysteries against the wall and they yeah. answered most of them they actually did but like a lot of the times they were like fuck we have like nine episodes left and like forty things yeah. left to answer so let's make the answer to this one, this one, this one, and this one all be the same thing. <laughs> Where did this boat also... come from? Why is the statue broken? How did he get to the island? He was on the boat yeah. and it smashed into the statue. Done. <laughs> like it was, it was such an ambitious show in a lot of ways. I mean, it oh was, yeah, it was more in a lot of ways more ambitious than many shows had been before up to that point. And and it also came out right when the internet was starting to really play with like fan bases and talking about stuff and and yeah. I think they panicked a little bit in terms of oh, like yeah. well what keeps this interesting is the mysteries and so we have to keep being mysterious and it's like well actually like figuring out the mystery is part of the fun like it's okay if the yeah. fan base figures out the mystery before the end of the first season that's okay as long as you keep engaging with it and having fun with it like the point of writing a mystery into a book isn't to be so mysterious that you trick everybody or keep everybody confused it's Mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. a it's a way of engagement and and it's okay if your readers figure it out (laughs) we're all very excited about this concept Andrea, you're our guest. You go first. <laughs> sure. um, so I, yeah, so like a big thing for me is like the big reveals and I love them and they're a big reason that I, I enjoy writing. But I always like tell people it's like so important. Like it's okay if readers figure it out before the reveal. Like ideally, you know, you want them to figure it out like right around the reveal, but it's okay if they figure it out like a little bit beforehand. If you make some people feel smart, like, what's the harm in that, right? They're not going to stop reading. They're going to want to see, well, what's the, like, next thing that you've got up your sleeve, right? And can I figure that out? So <laughs> I know people think, like, oh, well, I've got I've got to make sure that they don't know what it is until we get to that big reveal moment so we can have that big reveal. But it's, like, it's still exciting for people to get right. to that and have that yeah. confirmation that they were right. And there's still the element, there's still the elements of plot and character that you're bringing into, which is like, how is the plot fitting into this? And how is it going to resolve? And how are the characters reacting? Like, these are all parts you're playing with too, that the reader is coming along with as well. And even if they yeah. had the mystery figured out, they haven't guessed all that stuff too. When Babylon 5 was going on, and it was sort of like the prototype show for the before Lost of like the here is a long arc here are mysteries and I'm engaging with the internet because J. Michael Straczynski actually engaged with the internet before anybody was engaging with the internet and one of the things he was saying back because he was like always answering questions all that he's like look if I'm doing my job right one third of the audience is going to figure it out beforehand if it's if it's more than one third then you made it too easy and too obvious if it's less than one third then you made it too weird and out of left field and it's actually not going to work. Yeah, I, I feel like there's lot definitely of... like a balance to keep with that kind of thing. And I think we see a lot of it in in serialized media like TV. Like I feel like a lot of the examples we're coming up with are TV examples because there's more time to make 
like that kind of change as the show is happening. And I feel like we've seen some showrunners be like, oh no, the audience figured it out. We have to change everything and make sure we still surprise them. And like you said, like to, to feel like you're tricking them. And that to me is such a cynical way to go about storytelling. Yeah. And, and I read, a, I can't remember, I read a really good essay on it once about the idea of like, narrative trust versus narrative combat like you're not you're not you're not locked in combat with your audience hopefully this is a collaborative effort storytelling is collaborative between the teller and the audience in some way they are always going to be making some of the story in their heads even more so in books than in, in tv and film and you don't have to beat them you don't have to win the storytelling <laughs> and it's just so exhausting too i remember there was some show i can't remember what it was the theory of like oh it's this is what's happening and like shown up on reddit early on and apparently the showrunners panicked and reshot the season finale so it wouldn't be that but then it made no sense whatsoever and then it doesn't make sense no. and then and then you do you break the trust and it's not satisfying it it doesn't and so many shows have like um, you know, there's lots of multiple things that it could turn out one way or another. And that's where you get fun is like when any one of choices A, B, C, or D could be plausible. Which one's it going to be? Is it going to be like all of B, but maybe a little of C too? That's fun. If it turns out it's actually Q, that's not satisfying to anybody. <laughs> well, and it's it's interesting to me too, because when it comes to revealing a mystery, it's not only you know, did you figure it out, but how well did you do it? Like, do I want to watch how you're going to unravel this thing? Is the execution something that I, as a reader or watcher, am going to enjoy coming along with for? Like, I think it's pretty obvious that we don't only watch things to figure out what's going to happen next or read things. We like retellings. Well, you already know what all the elements in a retelling are going to be to some extent. And there may be some twists or differences, but you're not watching to see, like, What's going what's going to happen in this Beauty and the Beast retelling? Like you know what's gonna happen, but you wanna see how they're gonna do it. I mean, Titanic was the biggest movie of its time for <laughs> years. We yeah. all knew where that was going. There was not a surprise <laughs> ending. It was, it was for some people, but <laughs> I mean, bless. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of love that for them. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, I know we talked, we're talking about like television series and everything, but as writers, oftentimes we'll write series and we have that kind of same thing where you'll have like everything laid out in the first two books. And well, what if somebody figures out your big book three reveal before you write book three? Are you going to change that? Like, really? You probably should not. <laughs> I, I definitely think there's like, there's a pacing thing for, for mysteries and reveals of mysterious world elements where. You're kind of laying out, well, here's the mystery, and then you're going to solve like a little part of it or solve one small mystery, and that's going to maybe reveal another one. And you kind of have to pace things right. And when you're doing that, you're laying down clues for like maybe you've got like a big book one reveal or a big book three reveal. You're just going through and laying out those clues for that. Because I think one of the fun things, too, is that it gives that it, another element where people can go back and reread it and get a different feel for like, oh, this is what was actually going on because now I understand how this world works. So I, I like that element too. That to me is like, mm, if I can get that in there. I, I love it when you can see that when you go back, you can see either it was so well and meticulously planned 
or that the author did their plot jazz so damn well that it feels that way, <laughs> then, I mean, it's chef's kiss. Love it. Yeah. Makes me think of one of my all-time favorite movies, which is not speculative fiction, but I just rewatched it recently. Clue from 1985, which has its famous, its famous three separate endings, all of which work. And the reason that is such a good movie, it is immaculately scripted and acted and edited so that each one of those three endings works. The clues are in the right places. The, the people who are absent from a scene are accurate for all three endings. And it's like, that's what you got to do. You got to put your pieces together so that it satisfies. And if the reader does go back or the viewer does go back to check to see, like, was that, where was that clue? Where was that? Did, was that there? Like, pay that off, too. For, for people like me who are huge nerds who will go back and rewatch and reread things to be like, I want to see how all the pieces fit together. And that comes also from that sort of like Agatha Christie drawing room mystery sort of thing where you give everyone equal opportunity and motive and then everyone is a potentially viable. I think it's, I think it's interesting that you can, you can learn a lot of world building hints from the closed door mystery. Oh yeah. Just in terms of how to reveal things and how to give everyone equal stakes and things and have everyone have a, have a different perspective on the exact same situation. Like that's, that's not, that's not just a mystery writer's game. That's a world building game too. It really is. I, uh, I recently watched uh, severance. I don't know if you guys have watched that the first season. It's so gorgeous. It is so well done. And so, yeah. And also that same meticulously put together. The pacing of the reveals is perfect on that. And I just like, I kept turning to my husband, John, and like talking to him about like, okay, you got to pause this. Like, this is why they're like doing this so well. And this is how this works. So like, this is why this works so great. And oh, this is how I want to apply it to like what I'm working on right now. Like, it's just, oh, I would highly recommend um, if you are at all like curious about what I mean when I talk about pacing as far as like world mysteries and reveals, like that is done so well because you enter into this world with an understanding of, okay, this is what's going on as far as like, okay, the big concept, right? Which is, oh, people have a um, separation between their work selves and their uh, selves outside. And that's, yeah, and their regular life. And that's like the big starting concept. And as you go deeper into this like company that does this and the show, you start to find out like more and more weird things, but you also get answers at the same time. And this like really, really well paced manner. So that I, I find myself like trusting it a lot more than I trusted Lost because I feel like Lost um, was paced incorrectly in the sense that it built up all these mysteries and then it tried to like answer them all at once. You know, I feel like you have to have that trickle when you build a mysterious world and you're wanting to have those reveals and you're wanting to have those discoveries that you have to have that trickle of information. Show the reader you're trustworthy. Right, right. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so they're along for the ride. The, the funny thing about Lost is the thing that they were always, what they were trying to build their mysteries around were the things that were rooted in character. And so in that first season, the first season, like it sets up like mysteries about the island. But the real thing is like revealing all these things about these people and like who they were in their backstory and using those flashbacks for that. But like people latched on to like the no, but the island mysteries in a really unhinged way from the 
get-go. I mean, I remember this because I watched it, you know, when it was when it was on. Like, literally, the first episode, I remember there's a bit where, like, right in the beginning with the plane crash and the chaos and all that, and Hurley is, like, helping Claire, who's pregnant, and somebody's like, oh, he's being so tender with Claire. What's that about? Wait a second. What if there's a time travel loop and he's really Claire's baby from the future? <laughs> and I'm like... You saw hooves and didn't even go zebras. You went like... <laughs> camel leopards. You went camel leopard. Yeah, I mean, with Lost, I feel like the, the character reveals were done really well. Like, I felt that was paced well. The island mystery stuff was just, just yeah. out there. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that's a good lesson, too, of like, you know, we do have a hard job in connecting the importance of character with the importance of world. And in some ways, like having character be important can help you to reveal world mysteries in, you know, very satisfying and organic and interesting ways, like almost like overused example. But I feel like the original Twilight Zone did an amazing job of setting up mysteries through the lens of one person's experience. Like this person is dropped into an unfamiliar situation is like, 75% of Twilight Zone episodes as a person is in an unfamiliar situation and they're navigating through it and trying to figure out what's going on and the audience is going along with them. So you have this element of discovery and slow reveal that is completely through the experience of a character. And I think that we can learn something from that of like, what do you notice? What do you see? How are the important things plucked out and revealed? And how is that character misinterpreting what they're seeing? But the viewer can kind of choose to go along with that interpretation or, or did you know, you know, there's more going on under the surface. So you're putting together more, you know, from what you're seeing. My favorite episodes of Star Trek are the ones that are like that, that are, that are like this Socratic method in action of like asking the computer to like define parameters. The, the one where um, everyone seems to be disappearing except Beverly Crusher in Next Generation. <laughs> and she has to figure out why like what is happening and i love when they have to because it so makes explicit the interrogation of a world by a character in it not just by the audience but you're going along too like you're also trying to put together like well wait you should ask this and then hopefully they do (laughs) and it has that great line for beverly of like if there's nothing wrong with me then there's something wrong with the universe (laughs) (laughs) and she was right i love that it's easily Beverly's best episode. Not the ghost sex one? You don't? I was going to say, <laughs> oh my God. depending on how you define best, maybe the ghost sex one is a, like, that's one where clearly, clearly Gates McFadden was having the most fun. <laughs> I mean, who wouldn't? That's... <laughs> but in terms of story. Well, that perhaps brings us to an interesting other consideration about, I found a segue. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> Giggle at me. No, it brings us to an interesting consideration of when we are putting these mysterious things in speculative fiction, how does the technology of sci-fi or the magic of fantasy weave into both like the mystery itself and the revelation of the mystery? Is it a tool you can use to find the answer? Is it something obstructing you from finding the answer or a little of both? Could be fun. Yeah, I mean, I feel like you can do all of those things. Um, I, I particularly like fantasy because you can just make your own mysteries and just make everything up which is awesome but also you know one of those things where later you're like why why did i decide to do this because you have to keep track of everything but yeah i I feel like it can be a tool that they use to discover things about the world and sometimes it can be part of the mystery itself because 
how does their magic actually work? Maybe they just use it and then they don't understand maybe like it's side effects or I mean like look at us like right we're like digging up oil and burning it and then we're like oh crap whoops <laughs> whoops didn't know that it did that right <laughs> so like, there are often things that we can look at in both science and magic where it may have unintended consequences and also like reveal other things about the world do we accidentally have magical radiation whoops <laughs> um, I also love stories where like the magic stops working for some reason and we have to figure out why it's like oh no this thing we've come to rely on can we get it back has it changed forever is it gone forever and and figuring that that leads to so many cool investigations of what the magic is and what's its source and how do we how do we get to the bottom of that yeah it's it's fascinating because magic can run the complete gamut of like this mysterious thing that no one understands and they just kind of poke every once in a while and see what happens to like those almost scientifically thought out you know, approaches to creating a magical system. So I think it's fun that you can, you can kind of take the mystery of magic in any direction that you choose. You know, like I think we've said before on here that any, you know, sufficiently fleshed out and understood magic system kind of becomes a science. And that science has its own mysteries and its own like discoverability and lack of discoverability. So you can kind of play with any, like anything on that spectrum, you can play with what is mysterious, what is not mysterious. I mean, that's half the fun I had in writing the mystical murders of Ian Mara that had mage and scientists working together being like, here's, here are some dead bodies that we can't explain with either magic or science. What's going on? <laughs> yes, it's terrible that there's dead bodies, but also, ooh, this is interesting. It's fascinating. But that also made me think about in The Magicians, how each season they broke magic in a different way. <laughs> and and the, the season long plot is basically like, how do we unbreak magic that we broke? And then, oops. <laughs> We broke okay. it a different way. It's like writing a software program, right? Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of things that seem like mysterious magic, if you don't understand how they work, it's like, yeah, why does this work? That'd be a great, like, character for a, uh, an urban fantasy or something is a, and it probably exists in somebody's fiction that I just haven't read, the, um, the debugger for magical programs. <laughs> the person whose job it is to inspect the magical code and find out like oh no i'm sorry we, we no one can run this spell for the next five days because <laughs> i've got to go back in and fix what's wrong with this spell <laughs> then i'll re-release it there'll be a patch you'll be fine but please do not invoke calamaran's nephthys for the next five days we'll, we'll get back to it or else the toads will just be everywhere every everywhere you don't want that you don't want it just don't do it revoking access until we get it fixed one of the things I loved in Bone Char Daughter was the fact that, that the magic resembled coding. So <laughs> instead it was this sort of like, here's this piece of code. What can I, how can I change this without like undoing this core thing that's already here? Without messing everything else up. Yeah, I feel like that's becoming my brand, fortunately or unfortunately. It's like magic, but make it STEM, you know? Nice. <laughs> so. Love it. Lean into it. Let me suggest you, is there anything else that we haven't talked about that you wanted to talk about, Andrea? Coelacanths to Bigfoot, we've talked about it all. I know, we have. We, <laughs> we have. <laughs> I got to talk about, is it still appendices if you're talking about the organ or do you know. say That's appendixes? A That's a good question. Why did we name that the same thing? What genius thought that? <laughs> it's this thing 
to the side. <laughs> it's unnecessary. That you don't really need. You don't really need, yeah. But maybe... <laughs> Come on. I remember seeing somebody talk, saying that the appendix was the trust fund intern of the internal organs. <laughs> because it does nothing. And whenever it gets slightly irritated, it just blows up and and, and goes true. away. It ruins it for everybody else. And similarly, we keep it around until it causes a problem, and then we cut it loose. The thing that fascinates me is, like, there there could possibly be a function that it performs. Like, what if there was, like, a world where they had, like, this organ that they think is non-functioning, but then it turns out they, like, needed to do this, like, kind of magic or something? I mean, like, there's, like, all of these... That's where... That's the magic or That was the magic organ, where, like, the magical energy would flow through your body, but now it's now it's atrophied and it doesn't work anymore. We took it out. We took it out because it was inflamed. So sorry. <laughs> you can't. You can't magic anymore. <laughs> That's a magic system somebody should do. That magic. Your magic is based just entirely on your gut biome, and <laughs> that it's really you're. If you're filled with the right bacteria that are the good magic bacteria, you can do magic. But if like. Isn't that just midichlorians? I mean, it is. But if you're. That's on- a kind of midichlorian. <laughs> but, but, but you can get your midichlorians with kimchi. So, so. I thought midi chlorians were the powerhouse of the cell. <laughs> I like the idea too of like a magical organ, but but if you like use too much magic, yeah, it could become inflamed. It could or it could get infected or something or and you gotta, you know, like it out. the equivalent of liver disease of, or something. If you if you overuse your magic organ, it's like oh you did too much. No 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 more magic for you because it ruptured. Yeah, and you have cirrhosis of the magical gallbladder or whatever. <laughs> be terrible this is this is why when you're a fantasy or sci-fi author your search history is really weird <laughs> yeah. really strange yeah like what organs could you rupture and still survive <laughs> <laughs> hmm. why was she asking that says the nsa yes <laughs> we're all on, we're all more, on more, yep again again hi chad how you doing how are the kids <laughs> my personal nsa agent crazy google i mean we're just doing weird google searches but like like, 19th century science was pretty much that of, like, if I take the pancreas out of this dog, will it still live? Let's try. <laughs> and, like, okay, it lived, but interesting. Now its urine is very sweet. And how do you, and how do you know that? <laughs> oh, it's because all the flies were like, ooh, this urine's yeah. cool. Like, we're swarming yeah. around it. 19th century science was wacky. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, people are very empirical. I feel like sometimes we, like, make fun of this. Like, like they were so stupid. They thought that this worked. But it's like, but it kind of did. And they didn't have any reason to think it was a problem. So, it's, you know, that's kind of science at work in some ways. Is The data says that it seems to work. So, we're going to keep trying it. Okay. People would get inflamed appendices. And they'd say, let's just cut it out. And that's... And, and then the person was running, like, I guess you don't need it at all. Like, You're still alive and functioning normally. Yeah. I mean, how much of that was the... Like, well, we cut out one kidney. See what happens. I was about to say kidneys. Like, how do we figure <laughs> out you only needed one? That seems risky. That's... Mm. Well, I mean, speaking of risky discoveries, um, I'm, I'm always wondering, like, who was the first person to try durian? Because I'm like, to me, it smells like a cross between like sewage and gasoline. And somebody was like, well, let's see if this is edible. 
so much stuff with food. Like, I mean, and especially the things where it's like you have to first do A, then B, then C, and then you can eat it. Like, who is the person who had done A and B, like, for whatever reason, and been like, nope, we still die. There's got to be another, like, we can, there's got to be a way. We can, this can still happen. There's still yeah. a chance. <laughs> We're not going to give up on this plant. We're just going to try something else. Yes. Oh, that didn't work either. Sorry, um, Steve. Or that Icelandic shark that's like fermented and buried in the, you like bury it and let it ferment underground yeah. for like a year and then you eat it. Like who was, who was playing truth or dare when, when that was discovered? That was probably somebody like me who goes in the fridge and I'm like, is this still good? <laughs> actually that is pretty good so yeah i always imagine the first person to try cheese there was a dare involved there somewhere like people always bring up the whole like oh they just put milk and like you know something that had some rennet in it like a calf stomach kind of thing and then traveled with it and then like yes but then they ate it that's the part that i'm amazed by every time someone was like hey our milk is solid now want to try it like <laughs> No, <laughs> you would not want to try that. I, I imagine, I mean, it was somebody who was just like, well, I am still hungry. <laughs> <laughs> or, yeah, or it was like, hey, Dave, look at, I'll give you five bucks. I'll give you five bucks if you eat a piece of milk. Or is it because they had also eaten some, you know, fermented fruit or very special herbs? And at that point, putting anything in your mouth seemed like a good idea. It's like, was this a chain reaction of... Who knows? Of bizarre, human, bizarre choices that early human discovery. Made. Human discovery is just <laughs> We're innovative. But it is kind of magical, and I love Well, we always like to end our guest star episodes the same way, which is to ask our our guest to give us a little a little something to slot into our world that we're building together. So be- before we sign off, Andrea, I'd like to ask what little gift you've brought us. <laughs> this was the only thing I did not do ahead of time. I was like reading this whole thing at like I don't know what time at night 9 30 or something which is past my bedtime uh, if you want to give us a steel of cans you can I'd be fine with that <laughs> um yeah why don't we do that like let's let's do some prehistoric animal that they think is dead that they've discovered fossilized bones of and suddenly somebody finds out that it's still alive I mean, that to me would be crazy. I love it. I love I it. Still, I still, I want to put that somewhere, That at least that feeling mm-hmm. of, oh shit, in my book somewhere where somebody's <laughs> discovered something that they think it just did not exist anymore and find out that, oh my God, it's like swimming around out there. <laughs> I love it. Is it swimming or is it like on an isolated island? It could be that. Crawling, flying. Any one of those things. Any one of those things. It's still amazing. I sort of want it to be like a flightless bird. Oh yeah, like a like a mystical penguin of some kind. (laughs) Yeah, a mystical penguin. Oh, a dodo, if you were. (laughs) (laughs) They thought that they ate all of them. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Oh, oh, poor penguins. Oh, it's in, uh, I think it's in Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency, because there's like this whole thing with this time travel and this old immortal man who controls the time travel machine. And he has this thing of like, I saved the coelacanth, because I was like, let's save the coelacanth. And because of that, the dodo died. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> like like Aww. that was his like his like little lesson of of you can't it's a real just, monkey's paw situation. You yeah. can't just change you can't just change history willy nilly because just because you have a time machine. But I love I love the idea of of secret place that has all the extinct things that are not extinct. <laughs> I love it. I think our map even has like a random island out in the middle of nowhere, doesn't it? We have so many random islands. We need to. We could totally have a little lost world island. Mystical Penguin Island. We've now named it. It's now Mystical Penguin Island. Mystical Penguin Island. But we 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 definitely need to to get back to the world, get back to the map, and do and do some work. Maybe next episode. Well, Andrea, thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been an absolute blast talking about about Bigfoot and silicants and mysteries and. And lots of good crunchy craft stuff too, which was fun. Yeah. Yeah, I'm so glad I got to talk about cryptozoology. I don't believe any of those things are actually alive. I just wish that I believed just, it. They're alive <laughs> in our hearts. They are, very much so. Oh, Nessie. Yes. <laughs> for me for me it's the Megalodon, I know. Sorry, Cass. <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me. It's always a blast to talk to you guys. Thanks for coming. Hi you! Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. Our next episode goes up on March 29th, where we'll be going back to the world of the MNG and talking about ways to incorporate some of the recent topics we've had into that world. If you want to know more about your hosts and the fantastical books we write, including Cass's latest The Bloodstained Shade, my new novelette Hultachaya, or Rowena's The Fairy Bargains of Prospect Hill, links to all of that information is on our website at worldbuildingformasochists.podbeam.com. We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter as at WorldBuildCast, and our email is WorldBuildCast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room linked in the About the Show page of our website if you want to come and chat with us and other fans of the podcast. We'd love for you to share the worlds you're making and help us all build more.